all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, where we discuss issues involving your children as they are growing up. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC and Program Director of the MedPeds Residency Program. One of the hardest things as a parent is discerning what is normal from what is abnormal. Is this fever something I should worry about? When is a cough a symptom of something more serious? Why is my teen acting this way? Well, Southern Remedy Kids and Teens is here for you today. Give us a call and we'll see if we can answer some of these questions. Today is Open Topic Day and we would love to hear what's on your mind. You can reach us by calling one 877 mpb ring That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send an email to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens from MPB Think Radio. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Donald Trump is expected to soon announce a new nominee for Secretary of Labor after his previous candidate, Andrew Puzder, was unable to get enough support in the U.S. Senate for confirmation. Yesterday, on the eve of his hearing, the fast food businessman withdrew after concerns emerged about his professional and personal controversies. The Senate has narrowly voted to confirm President Trump's pick for budget director. NPR's Scott Horsley reports South Carolina Congressman Mick Mulvaney was approved on a mostly party-line vote. Mulvaney, who will oversee the White House Office of Management and Budget, is a deficit hawk who's taken a harder line on safety net spending than the president he'll be working for. During his confirmation hearing, Mulvaney said the government will need to address spending on Social Security and Medicare, two programs that President Trump has said he wants to protect. Mulvaney is also skeptical of military spending, which cost him the support of one Republican senator, Armed Services Committee Chairman John McCain. Fifty-one other GOP senators backed Mulvaney's confirmation, though, while all 48 Democrats and independents voted against him. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. U.S. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis is blasting Russian interference in the political processes of other nations. Terry Schultz reports from NATO headquarters where allies have been watching the Trump envoy carefully for clues to the administration's attitude toward Moscow. Secretary Mattis has made allies nervous with his comments that they might see U.S. support moderated if they don't boost defense spending fast. Asked for clarification on exactly what that means, Mattis declined to elaborate. But he did pledge U.S. support against an aggressive Russia would not waver. And he accused the Kremlin of meddling in other countries' political processes. 
There's uh, very little doubt that they have either interfered or they have attempted to interfere in a number of elections. Mattis did not respond directly to the question of whether the U.S. election was one of those. He says the Trump administration will be engaging politically with Moscow to see where better cooperation is possible. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz at NATO headquarters in Brussels. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has been meeting with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, on the sidelines of a G20 gathering in Germany. Lavrov again dismissed allegations that his country interfered in the U.S.'s democratic elections, an issue that has become a growing distraction for the Trump administration. Still no claim of responsibility for today's deadly bomb blast in Baghdad. A car was blown up at a dealership in the Al-Bayat neighborhood just before sundown in Iraq today. Local medics put the number of deaths or injuries at at least 45. The Iraqi capital has been the site of frequent bombings claimed by ISIS. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was down 16 points. This is NPR. A new level of devastation has struck Mozambique, an African nation already struggling to survive a financial crisis. A cyclone that made landfall on the coast late yesterday has been downgraded. But as NPR's Afabia Quistarkton reports, the heavy rainfall and powerful winds remain a significant threat to the nation. Mozambique's Disaster Management Institute advised vulnerable communities to seek safe shelter ahead of Tropical Storm Dineo. The coastal province in Yamban was hit, but the storm weakened as it headed westwards towards Zimbabwe and South Africa and has now been downgraded. Emergency services Lechadima Liso says officials are monitoring the storm and are on standby to help vulnerable people. Municipalities and provinces are also ready to bring in whatever amounts of assistance that we can need as the stock will be moving now inland, passing through to Botswana. Forecasters in South Africa say heavy winds and rains can still be expected in Limpopo, in Pumalanga and KwaZulu-Natal. Ophelia Christalton, NPR News, Johannesburg. The newest batch of economic data suggests slower but continued growth in the U.S. The Labor Department saw claims for unemployment insurance increase slightly last week, but the overall weekly number remains far below 300,000. So does the less volatile four-week average. It has been that way for 102 consecutive weeks. That's the longest stretch since 1970. U.S. stocks are trading lower. The Dow is off 13 points at 20,598. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Bluevine, offering businesses revolving lines of credit to cover expenses, make payroll, purchase supplies, and to expand. Credit lines up to $100,000. Learn more at Bluevine.com. This is Southern Remedy, Kids and Teens with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, kids at mpbonline.org. And now, Southern Remedy, Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. Good morning. This is Dr. Jimmy Stewart, and welcome to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. Well, today is your program. You know, it's always your program, but today the topics are your program. So that's right this morning. We'll be taking on any and all questions that you might have on the health of your children or your family. And 
anything is game. So take the chance. If something's been tickling your brain, uh, you've been just getting stumped on what's going on with your child, uh, I'll take a stab at it this morning. We'll see what we can come up with. So we would love to hear from you. You can reach us this morning by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So I hope everybody's having a great morning, sort of in that late February, early March. Well, I went to the rodeo last night. I'm sure I got exposed to a lot of stuff, but I had a good time uh, at the rodeo. The Bulls were winning. I don't mean the Chicago Bulls. I'm talking about the Bulls were winning. Only two guys stayed on. Uh, They were mean and mad last night. They were not in any good mood. But I had a good time there. I hope uh, you took advantage of going to the rodeo. And if you haven't, check it out next year. It's a great time to go with the whole family and have a lot of fun uh, while you're doing it. So a couple of things in the news that I thought I'd uh, sort of lead off with. Uh, The first one is some research in autism. You know, autism affects uh, about one in a hundred kids, and uh, it's normally picked up about uh, somewhere between age two and three is when we normally screen for it, mainly because that's the ages where you start to see some of the the developmental delays. And a lot of those have to do with, if you're familiar with autism, have to do with socialization skills and interacting with the environment and others. So we we really have to wait for those symptoms to... uh, to um, expose themselves to to really uh, you know be manifest in those children who who have autism, and we have a couple of different questionnaires that we give them, and then we can look and ask about different developmental uh, milestones, including those socialization milestones. So what this group was interested in is uh, obviously if we we know one thing about autism, if we catch it early enough, there are some great intervention. Uh, interventions that you can do to help with those different uh, delays of socialization skills and other developmental delays. Uh, the earlier you, you intervene, the better. We don't have a cure for, for autism, but we do have great ways now that we understand so much more about treating it. So being able to diagnose it earlier would be an advantage. So this group thought, well, we've got some great techniques of imaging the brain. We know that it's a problem within the brain itself. And we also know that there are some families who are more at risk. For instance, if you have one child with autism, uh, you've got about a one in five chance of another child, if you have another child that would have uh, a one in five chance of developing autism. So what they did is they took, uh, they used an MRI scanner. Uh, so that's sort of like a CAT scan, except it's a little bit, little bit different. Doesn't have any risk of radiation. But they looked at uh, kids at different time points, and they looked at them early in the first year of age uh, of, of life, and uh, they, they looked at them at six months and twelve months. And they had three different groups. They had one group that uh, went on to, you know, they looked at it after they did the whole study. One group actually went on to have uh, autism and was at high risk. In other words, they had another child in their family that had autism. One group did not develop autism but had another sibling that had autism, and the final group was at low risk and did not develop autism. And surprisingly, what they found is even before the symptoms that you normally develop uh, in the second year of life, all the way down to six months of age, they started to see some characteristic changes. And they looked at surface area of the brain. They looked at brain volume. They looked at a number of things. Plug that into a computer to analyze all those different variables. 
and they were able to predict in high-risk patients, in other words, those patients who have somebody in the family with autism, uh, about 81% of the time it was it was uh, successful in predicting if that child would have autism. And again, the earlier you could identify this, the more you can you know really rely on those intervention techniques. So a great tool, not perfect, not ready for prime time yet, but certainly it uh, opens up the door for other research uh, to try to uh, to diagnose this earlier and earlier so that we can intervene and, and certainly to know more about it too. So great, great news on the autism front. It's not often we have, you know, really uh, useful information to, to, uh, to treat that. So that's one thing that's out there. And Certainly, flu uh, this year is another thing that's come up. Certainly, in our in our practice, we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of late flu, a lot of flu that's that's uh, associated with some GI, uh, you know, complaints of uh, vomiting and diarrhea. Um, a little bit later this year than what we normally see, but then you know, in Mississippi, anything goes. And certainly with travel now, it uh, certainly could be later in the year. So uh, be on the lookout for that. If your child has a high fever, if they have uh, you know, chills, if they're old enough to tell you about that. Uh, certainly the the ones that are the most at risk are younger in age. So if you have a child that's less than, than a year of age, they're, they're, uh, they're uh, more likely to have complications from the flu. So uh, just, just keep that in mind. If they do get a fever, get them checked out. So there are some treatments, depending on the age of the child, that can help decrease the length of time that they have those symptoms uh, and to protect other people around them if they're exposed. But flu's still here. I know it feels like it's sort of spring outside, but uh, certainly we're uh, seeing a lot of it um, out in the community and in the clinic. Talking about anything you want to talk about this morning. So we've got an open line today. Uh, you can give us a call with any of your uh, uh, health concerns about your family, uh, about your children. You can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Yeah, something else in the news. Uh, certainly, with the obesity problem that we have in the state in the southeast, uh, we look for some research on what we can do differently. And sometimes it is the the simple things that you can do, like changing diet and exercise. We talked about that uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, on the program about just some simple things to do for your heart health uh, that can have a big impact. And one of those, you know, it's hard to get people to change those if they can't really link those together to the actual bad effects of it. I mean, we know that, that you know, obesity is a big risk factor for heart disease and stroke later on in life. Uh, but sometimes if you have a child with it, it's a little bit more difficult to uh, sort of latch on to that idea. So most people don't, don't uh, aren't aware uh, of some of the risk factors of obesity in kids. One of those is having what we call NASH or NAFLD. So that's non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic steatohepatosis. And basically what it is is you, you have fat that's deposited in the liver itself, in between the cells of the liver. And this can be really toxic to those cells. It can uh, cause a lot of inflammation in the liver itself. Uh, and, and in some instances can cause some long-term problems with that. It's highly associated with, uh, with obesity. So, uh, you know, about 38% of, uh, up to 38% of kids with 
obesity might have at least some aspect of of that fatty infiltrate. And, you know, when you think about why certain types of food uh, certainly would uh, would can be associated with that. And what they, the recent study looked at was uh, the amount of, of soda intake, so sugary sodas, uh, non-diet sodas, they did see a significant increase in in that, and uric acid, which is sort of a, a breakdown product of some meats, particularly processed meats and, and red meats. So those two things were associated independently with with uh, being more at risk for uh, that type of uh, fatty liver disease. It's open line day on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, and we're going to start off our with our first question from Manuel from Cleveland. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. Did I get your name right? Yes, sir. Okay. Thank you for calling. You're very welcome. I'm calling today. I have a question here. I'm I'm dealing with the uh, eye disease, retinitis pigmentosis. Yes. And I'm I, I've been trying to uh, get a lot of information about it. I mean, other than what I know, because my doctor is telling me, you know, there's no help for it, you know, at this point, and there's no treatment, and as well as no surgery for it. And I was just wondering, you know, if you had any information about, you know, anything that might could help. Yeah, so that, so retinitis pigmentosa, one thing about eye disease is they have long names, and they're very confusing about what it is. It sounds like you have, uh, you know, done some background work on it. There are a couple of, uh, of eye problems, well, many eye problems, that unfortunately we don't have a lot of good treatment for that can cause progressive blindness. Retinitis uh, pigmentosa is one of those. Sometimes you'll see a lot of these uh, eye conditions that run into families. So, you know, knowing what happens to your family is really important. Um, you know, there's only so much that you can do uh, locally. What I, in your case, what I would, I would suggest to you, um, most of the research in these types of problems it, that uh, tend to not have a good uh, cure for them, I would go to a center that treats a lot of these and sometimes you may have to drive a little bit of ways to do that. Sometimes they can coordinate, though, with your eye doctor locally. Um, there are some experimental treatments that might slow that. Uh, but if it was me, you know, losing your vision is a big deal. Uh, and uh, I would try to do anything I could, you know, within within reason to, to try to preserve that. Um, certainly trying to minimize a lot of other risk factors, too. There's a lot of other things that are common that can... Uh, contribute to to a progressive um, loss of vision over time. Things like diabetes, high blood pressure. You know, if you're at risk for any of those, those are some things that you can control and treat. Yes, uh, so making sure you don't have any other damage along the way. But I, I would I would look regionally, and to be honest with you, I don't know right off the top of my head about anybody that's you know that's regionally there. Certainly, you'd find those in bigger cities. Uh, you know, to check out the ophthalmology at, at academic centers, at academic medical centers, and just give them a call. You know, call the ophthalmology department and say, hey, I've, I've got retinitis pigmentosa. Do you all have any, uh, you know, clinics that are specifically designed to treat patients with that? Do you have any, um, um, uh, you know, experimental trials that are going on or ongoing clinical trials uh, would be a better term to ask for clinical trials uh, that are going on to, you know, to try to figure out uh, if if there's something that you might benefit you. So there are some things that you can do. I, I would just get to somewhere and I would ask them, you know, how many of these types of patients do you see? And just because it's a rare disease, uh, you know, locally, your ophthalmologist may not 
uh, may not feel comfortable because they're not just they're not seeing a lot of those patients. They could certainly diagnose you with it, but as far as treatment, I I think I would go to a regional center just to get a second opinion on any kind of things that you might can do. Yes, sir. So. Sorry, I couldn't uh, provide you more things, Manuel, but uh, hang in there and uh, always look. Hey, new things are on the horizon every day, so if you uh, stop looking, you're not going to find them. But thanks for calling. Thank you. Let's go to Jennifer in Columbus. Good morning, Jennifer. Hi. Hi. Um, I just have a question. Um, I have a two-year-old who seems to have bad allergies. Um, and I have been giving her Zyrtec every night, probably since May of last year. And I've talked to my pediatrician and about it, and she doesn't seem very worried about it. What what kind of allergy symptoms is, are they are they having? Well, if I take her off, um, even for like a night, or you know, I've, I've only done this maybe twice. Um, her eyes get, of course, real puffy. She's sneezing like crazy. She almost, it, it almost looks like she has a fever. Yeah. I mean, she just gets real bad. And now I do have dogs that are very furry. <laughs> but what I'm wondering is, does anybody know the long-term effect of giving her Zyrtec every night? Right. And um, and and should I be worried that my pediatrician hasn't? She won't. She doesn't seem to want to refer me to an allergist. Sure. Yeah. So so at that age, uh, certainly allergies are very common. You can have those in infancy or as a toddler. Uh, certainly, you can develop those. Uh, they can run in family. So if you have other family members, it's more likely to be allergy type symptoms, and they go on longer. You know, uh, a cold or or some type of infection. A lot of people think every time. You know, their child looks the, has the symptoms that you mentioned. They say, "Well, they must have a sinus infection," and that's right. you know that's not always. You don't want to go down that route of treating it with antibiotics every time they have the symptoms. Uh, certain times of the year, they might flare up too. You know, the the uh, typical thing that we see uh, here in the South is uh, early spring uh, right. through early summer, the sort of the tree pollens, and ac- they're actually pretty high right now. Uh, and then when you, once you get into summer, it's more of the grasses, uh, grass pollens. Uh, and then again, tree and grass sort of in the fall, you have these sort of seasonal things. Um, the problem with trying to nail down, okay, if it's an allergy problem, which this sounds, you're given all the symptoms that a kid would have with allergies. I mean, these sound like typical allergy symptoms. At, at the age that they're at, uh, going to an allergist, they may be able to, you know, to do some things, but it's uh, you really need them around about four years of age before they okay. can do the true testing. You know, the and the testing's a lot better, by the way. You know, the old thing that actually I had when I was a kid, uh, it looked like a torture chamber. Um, and, you know, they came at you with all these needles and they do the skin okay. testing. It's much easier now with the patch testing, and there's lots of different ways to do it. So an allergist is your person to go to for those kinds of things. Some people will do uh, a test where they take some of the child's blood and they look for allergies through the blood. It's not as good a test, and sometimes you can even have fa- false positives. In other words, it may say that they're allergic to birch tree pollen. Uh, but it, you know, just because it's in a test tube that way, it may not actually, they may not actually be allergic to that. So it's a little bit more specific if you do the other testing. 
Right. And I guess, but I'm, I, am I, am I harming her, giving her, I just feel guilty right. about giving her this medicine yep. every single, every single night. I mean, she's taken, you know, 2.5 milliliters every single night. Right. And I don't know whether that's going to, like, if I, if I wanted to take her off of it, is that going to affect her sleep? Is it addictive? I mean, I don't think it sure. is addictive. Yeah, so so uh, those type of antihistamines, uh, so another type might be Benadryl is a sedating one. Uh, right. Zyrtec or Claritin or Allegra tend to be less sedating or non-sedating. Um, what we know about them is you can have side effects. And, you know, sleepiness is probably the most common one, even with those that aren't sedating. Um, as far as long-term, we know that, you know, based on long-term studies of, of safety, they're pretty safe. Now, a lot of kids will have problems uh, once they get into school with cognition. So uh, there are some kids that just can't remember as well and don't test as well if they're taking antihistamines. It sort of slows them down a little bit. Right. So, well, what's your sh- suggestion? To, do you think I should try to take her off? I mean, it just seems like every time I try to take her off, she's right. just miserable. <laughs> yeah, I would do it. So you got to balance that out. Now, any kind of medication, uh, you know, particularly that's used in this manner for allergies, I mean, at this point, you don't know, is he, are these allergy symptoms that she's going to have all year round? Right. Is it something that, it you know... to be that way. Yeah, and you can have that. You can have, you know, what we call perennial allergies that happen, and it, it's probably something that she might be getting in, in contact with, uh, probably my dog. <laughs> <laughs> don't get rid of the dogs yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> don't get rid of the dogs yet. I mean, there's, and as she gets older, you know, antihistamines aren't the only thing that you can use. And actually right now at, you know, at age two-ish, uh, you can use a couple of other medications that have even less side effects than antihistamines. Singulair is a medication that can help, particularly if somebody has a lot of nasal symptoms and oh, uh-huh. and it doesn't cause a lot of the sedation. It doesn't really cause a lot of the you know the uh, um, problems with with remembering things. And it comes as a chewable tablet, so that that may be something that you know at two that you might want to try. You could you could crush it up, or you could uh, have them you know chew on it. Um, but there, even as they get older, there's a lot more specific things you can do. Uh, for allergies. It's just in a small kid. You know, a lot of times we'll use a lot of nasal uh, uh, medications, prescription medications. Some of those are nasal steroids. There's nasal antihistamines. So things that'll just act where they're having the symptoms in their nose. Of course, a two-year-old, you're not going to be able to do that too well. They're not going to sit there and like you squirting stuff up their nose. But Right. Well, she's pretty, she's pretty good at that. Yeah, I would would go back and talk to your physician and just say, hey, do we have any other alternatives at this point? And even if they're hesitant to send you to an allergist, you could probably make that, you know, the call to go see them. Yeah, just to see if there's other things out there. So stick with it. You can find, you can can have some uh, some success with it. Okay, well, great. Thank you. All right. Thanks for calling. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to go back to your questions. Anything you want to ask, give us a call this morning at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. 
With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. For moments in black history, we highlight Medgar Wiley Evers. As a lifelong Mississippian, Medgar Evers wanted equality for all of its citizens. Becoming an NAACP field secretary in 1954, he was moving his vision in Jackson and around the entire state. Becoming a real key in the desegregation of Ole Miss, Medgar Evers was a real change agent until his assassination in 1963. We salute Medgar Evers for his vision. You can kill a man, but you cannot kill an idea. This has been MPV's Moments in Black History. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy, kids and teens with Dr. Jimmy Stewart. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, kids at mpbonline.org. to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and today is your day. That means you get to call in with all the hard questions for me. Puts me on the hot seat. I need to be on the hot seat more. So ask me some questions. We'll see if we can get to the bottom of things. I wanted to respond to to our first caller who called about retinitis pigmentosa. If you're still listening, there is a website that you can go to, and it's not limited to retinitis pigmentosa, but it's called centerwatch.com that's c-e-n-t-e-r-w-a-t-c-h.com and uh, if you search for you know retinitis pigmentosa clinical trials it'll tell you the different places around the country actually worldwide that you can sort of tap into some of the research that's going on so that's centerwatch.com there's a couple other websites out there but that would be one to to sort of start with to try to figure out if there's any kind of thing that you can be doing for that condition uh, you got to look sometimes, you know, sometimes uh, even your physician doesn't, uh, they certainly, there's so many things out there that you, uh, they're not going to be uh, up to date on everything. And a smart physician is going to tell you that. They're going to say, you know what, uh, I don't know this, but I can, I'm going to try to find the answer or I'll point you in the right direction of somebody uh, who can find that answer to you, uh, for you. So uh, keep looking, particularly if it's something that's, uh, you know, sort of stumping you or something that you feel like there's, just some more things that you want to explore out there. Let's go to Ann in Vicksburg. Good morning, Ann. Uh-oh. Ann, call back. Call back, Ann. We lost you there on the transfer, so I think she had a question about allergies, too, or a comment on allergies. So uh, if you're still listening, Ann, call back. We're sorry. We dropped you there. Something else in the news, vitamin D. So vitamin D is, uh, you know, it's been in the news quite a bit over the last five to ten years uh, all kinds of different deficiencies that we're finding out about uh, that sort of creep back in. Used to have vitamin D deficiency a lot uh, with people who uh, were not exposed to sunlight and certainly were inside buildings. That's one of the ways that your body produces vitamin D is uh, you ingest it as a vitamin uh, in your your normal diet. Uh, but you also can make it uh, with exposure to sunlight a lot of people, uh, you know, using sunscreens now and for other reasons to try to decrease the risk of skin cancer, you don't get a lot of vitamin D. And in northern latitudes, certainly not here in the south, we don't have a lot of problems with it. 
But in northern latitudes, you can have some problems with vitamin D deficiency, or if you have a lot of pigment in your skin. So, uh, if, you know, African Americans, other uh, ethnicities that have a lot more pigment in their skin may be a little bit more at risk for it. And we know it can cause a lot of problems. The biggest one is osteoporosis or thinning of your bones. Uh, and uh, certainly you'd want to get enough vitamin D that way. But it also may affect your immune system. So there's a trial that really looked at the effects of vitamin D deficiency and uh, really saw that if it was if you're deficient in it, that uh, it was more, you were more likely to uh, not be able to fight off bacteria and uh, viruses. So, you know, if you uh, if you're worried about that, certainly with kids, we we fortify a lot of things with vitamin D to try to get that uh, in their diet. Certainly, a healthy diet would be the best way to do it, and maybe a little bit of exposure to uh, to the sun. Uh, you don't need much for vitamin D. Uh, synthesis in most people. All right, I think we got Ann back. Thank you for calling back, Ann. No problem. Sorry about that. That's okay. I was just going to make a comment in regard to the woman that had the child with the allergy issues. Sure. She was getting Zyrtec on a daily basis. I would just recommend that she try, one, boarding the dog for a week and see if that does help because if it is the dog, you know, there may be something that can be worked out. But also... If she has carpets in her home, I suffered terribly from allergies until a few years ago when I got rid of all the carpet in the house and dusted frequently and made sure I changed the filter on the furnace to minimize the pollen indoors, and it reduced my allergy symptoms by over 50% without any medication or anything like that. So just taking care of the, the pollen that gets stirred back up inside the house may relieve some of the symptoms. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Ann, and, and we probably should have, should have uh, talked about the environment. So uh, all allergies are due to a, you know, an exposure problem. So you're being exposed to these things that your body's sort of hypersensitive to, that the immune system sort of thinks that they need to uh, activate that, that part of the immune system that causes the allergy symptoms. So Ann's right. You, getting that pollen or whatever the thing is that, that you're allergic to away from you is a great way. It's really a detective-type role that you have to be in. Uh, sit- and, and tree pollen was one of the primary um, allergens for me. Yeah. And it gets in, it gets in your carpet, you walk, you stir it up. Right. It's on your shelves. It's it's everywhere in your home. Yeah. And, and just by removing that and changing the furnace air conditioner filter every two to three weeks, depending upon, you know, how much it's run. Right. Huge, huge difference. Yeah. And I went from taking medication to not needing any medication. So. Yeah. Sometimes you can you can avoid the medications just by avoiding the, uh, the allergen. One other thing you can do, too, is uh, they make uh, covers for your pillows and for your your bed for the um, for the mattress uh, that are uh, hypoallergenic. At least what you're doing really is containing what's in there in that, you know, in that uh, in that cover. Uh, because a lot of stuff, it's not just the pollen that's outside. A lot of people can be allergic to dust mites, uh, which you can find in the cleanest of houses. Uh, a lot of the other molds that, that normally, I'm not talking about the mold that, you know, you have post-Katrina or that kind of thing, but there's normal molds, particularly in the south, just because it's so humid in the summertime and 
really throughout the year. So uh, doing some of those simple things, if you can, you know, if you have the resources to change over from carpet, particularly if it's a high pile carpet to wood floors or concrete floors, you know, certainly you want to think about that if you're moving into a new house. That might affect a lot of the symptoms that you're having and uh, give you a little bit of relief. Uh, some of the the filters that are out there in your, uh, you know, central heating and cooling can be good. Um uh, you know, window units for, for air conditioning. I know a lot of people, that's just what you have. Uh, they're a little bit worse, particularly if you're you're more allergic to molds. Uh, and it can, you know, no matter how much you try to clean those, they can certainly stir up those uh, those allergy symptoms. So, yeah, a little bit of detective work. I like the, the idea about taking the dog out, board them for a week, have somebody else keep them for a week, clean up in their areas and all the other dog, you know, hair and that kind of thing. See if it makes a difference. Hopefully it won't. I mean, everybody, nobody wants to do that to the dog. But, you know, you got to get to the bottom of what's going on. Um, but, yeah, those are great things that you can do in the home to try to avoid exposure to those things. Back in the 70s, there was this movie that John Travolta it was in. I think it was one of the first movies he was in. It was The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, I think was the name of it. Horrible movie. Like, it was the worst. I'm the movie critic now, right? But, uh, you know, some, some uh, and it was a totally different reason, but, you know, some people go to that extreme where they isolate kids that much. Just be a detective about it, though. Just like Anne was saying, try things. If they don't work, Probably you don't. You're not going to get any effect of continuing to do that. So, and you do need to give it some time. So the way the immune system works, as far as allergies go, you know, if you clean up for a day or remove something for a day, uh, you can't, you know, just the next day if there's no change in symptoms, say, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. So I would give it about a week uh, and and see if that if that works for you. But uh, but just just. Do a little trial and error, and keeping a diary is a good thing, too. Diaries are really good about a a lot of chronic medical conditions, not just allergies, Uh, but taking that diary about, okay, I ate this, I was exposed to this, and this is what happened, and sort of thinking in retrospect about what your child or what you were exposed to, that's always a good idea. And then you'd bring it to your physician, and maybe they want to, you know, if the child's old, old enough or you have an older child or adult, Maybe they want to test you for that. Immunotherapy is very successful with some allergens. Some of them don't work as well. Uh, But it is very successful in desensitizing you to whatever that instigating allergy is. So good advice, Ann. Thank you for uh, calling and uh, giving us that. We do appreciate your call. And sorry for uh, having you call back that way. Sometimes that happens, though. All right, we're talking about anything you want to talk about this morning. Got plenty of time for your questions. Doesn't matter what they are, just call us. If you've got a burning question about the health of your child or your family, you can reach us this morning at 1-877-672-7464 or send them an email to kids at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after this break.
Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by the generous support from you, our listeners. In southwest Pennsylvania's coal country, a father and daughter are having a culture war in their living room. She's a climate activist, and him? I can't see it. I don't believe it. (laughs) Things rising up and eating our atmosphere. One thing they agree on, bringing jobs back to their hometown. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy, Kids and Teens, with Dr. Jimmy Stewart. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, kids at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about all kinds of things, allergy problems, autism problems, all kinds of different things this morning, because we're taking your calls. If you have any questions about the health of your kids or your family, please give us a call this morning. We would love to tackle those questions at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 877 672-7464 or you can send an email to kids at mpbonline.org Another study that I got here in front of me that's sort of interesting to me at least uh, hopefully it's interesting to you ADHD, a lot of kids have ADHD, a lot of adults too, we know now that it sort of persists into adulthood uh, that explains a lot you know, if you think about it, some some parents of uh, some people my age growing up and you're like, man, I just knew something was going on, I mean there was something there that you sort of pieced uh all the symptoms back together and like, yeah, that might be ADHD. A lot of questions about, you know, can you recognize ADHD? And brain imaging, another brain imaging study, sought to look at that. And it's incredible the amount of MRI images that they took. It was about 3,000 people, about half of them with ADHD and half uh, did not have it. And interestingly, they found certain areas of the brain's uh, of those who had ADHD tended to be smaller in certain areas when compared to the brains of those pa- uh, patients that did not uh, have ADHD, particularly in uh, in certain areas uh, like the basal ganglia. Uh, and that that's a part of the brain that controls emotion. It controls uh, cognition, sort of how you think, and also voluntary movement. So if you think about it, those are a lot of the symptoms of ADD, uh, and you can have, you know, predominantly three different forms of ADD, a hyperactivity form, an inattentive form where you uh, lack the attention uh, span that you normally would have, and then a combined form that has both of those. But they found that uh, two regions in that area of the brain uh, tended to be smaller in those people who had uh, ADD 
Uh, and it's very interesting. It just goes along. You know, a lot of people suspected this, that there were probably some changes in the structure of the brain that predispose those people to have a little bit more difficulty with inattention uh, and other things. And, you know, that's that's another, you know, not that we're probably not going to scan a lot of people. We have a lot of good ways to test for it. And uh, certainly you can have changes in the brain that don't really correlate with what's going on. Uh, but it does allow us to sort of uh, zoom in on those certain areas uh, that may be a little bit different in looking at things that, that might work out a little bit better and maybe down the line uh, diagnosing those patients a little bit earlier uh, instead of waiting for those symptoms to come up. Open line day-to-day. You can give us a call this morning with your questions or comments about anything. You can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. Got an email here about another teenager. It says, uh, my 15-year-old son has been playing sports all his life, particularly soccer, basketball, and baseball. Recently, he's noted some pain on his left knee, uh, right, or right, right just below his kneecap. Uh, the pain usually comes on with activity and persists for hours, sometimes days after that. And I've also noticed that he has a little bit of a lump just below that, uh, below his kneecap on the left side. Is this something I should be worried about? My physician said, don't be worried about it. It's nothing. But I'm just concerned, particularly since the lump is there. We don't have a family history of cancer, uh, but I'm always concerned about that uh, with my family. So that's a common question that we have, you know, lumps and bumps. And a lot of people deal with the growing pains. A lot of people, everybody has heard about that, you know, the the nebulous growing pains that people have. uh, And what is that? Uh, So there are certain ways that the body uh, uh, enlarges tissues, grows, uh, particularly with height. Uh, So particularly in the bones, the bones, uh, you're not born with solid bones. So you have... Uh, bones that are mostly cartilage, they're sort of pliable, and they have what we call growth centers. So they have certain areas of the bone that at uh, at at those areas they they lay down more bone uh, in those areas, and it, that that's what allows you to grow. Basically, it puts down bone at those areas on the edges of that growth center, uh, and sometimes it, you can have really profound growth. You know, everybody, you know, it probably has somebody in your family that grew uh, four inches in six months, uh, you know, that where you're really doing, having a lot of activity right there. Well, during those rapid growth phases, if you stress those areas a little bit more than usual, and sports are one way that you can do that. You can, you know, certainly not to pick on any sport, but things that where you have acceleration and deceleration forces you can have uh, a little bit of pulling away of that growth center right where the tendons or um, or ligaments uh, attach themselves to it. And this can happen in different parts, uh, you know, of the body. There is one that's, uh, you know, one site that it sounds like in this uh, email that uh, is happening in this teenager. Typically in boys it happens, and it's called Osgood-Slaughter's disease. And it's not a true disease. It's a disorder that's that's most of the time benign, almost never. You, you don't have to do any surgical treatment or anything like that. But you can have pain just below the kneecap on one, usually on one side and not the other. Nobody really understands why. And uh, it it uh, you have this little bump. And you normally have a, a bump where the, all the 
the tendons that attach from the muscles on the front part of the leg attach to your patella or kneecap. And then there's a, a ligament that goes from there uh, to that area uh, of the bone that's that growth center. And uh, you can have sort of a, a bump that's there. I actually had this when I was a kid, and actually both my sons have this, uh, one on each, you know, on each side. So it's, you know, it's very common. Generally, as I said, you don't have to do too much. NSAIDs or, you know, things like ibuprofen uh, can help out. Ice to the area can help out. And you really, you know, limitations of activity are certainly the biggest thing. Do you need to worry about that? Generally, you you don't, uh, you know, heavy weightlifting is probably not the thing that you need to do. And certainly I would gauge that based on, on the pain level. If the child's having, a, you know, if the kid's having a lot of pain in that area, I would back off of it for a while, try some of those you know, sort of conservative uh, things uh, first, and then uh, and making sure that they're stretching appropriately too. Uh, maybe, you know, go to physical therapy a couple of times to really sort of get a, a, a sense of what they need to be doing. Now, in some cases, it can progress to the point where you need to involve an orthopedic surgeon. But most of the time, your pediatrician or, or a primary care provider can, can, uh, can deal with that. Now, you mentioned cancer, uh, you know, risk or, or concern about that. Sometimes certain bone cancers or soft tissue cancers can present in the same way. Uh, you know, certainly I would get it checked out by a physician. Don't just say, oh, that's just growing pains. You just need to, uh, you just need to, you know, suck it up and, uh, and just endure it. I deal, dealt with that. But if, if you, you know, you don't want to say that to, to somebody, you need to, to go ahead and get them checked out. So uh, always, if you have any kind of concerns as a parent, you want to go ahead and get somebody checked out. All right, let's go to Frank in Alabama. Good morning, Frank. Thank you for calling. I'm asking if they've tried anything as radical as electric shock for the subject that you're discussing today. I worked in a mental hospital over 60 years ago, and I found that it was only electroshock that made any difference in the schizophrenics. And so I'm wondering whether maybe they haven't tried electric shock uh, and I noticed that they don't they don't seem to cure it I'm talking about the subject that you're talking about today in children right but well Frank we, we have a couple of different subjects so we're not it was basically just you know whatever questions people are calling in on so and then I, there was a couple of things in the news are you talking about the autism or ADHD I am oh okay okay yeah so uh, uh, go ahead uh, I'm just wondering whether they've tried anything as radical because uh, they they don't seem to make much progress on the problem. Yeah, so so electrical shock therapy or electroshock therapy uh, is something that was done, you know, fairly early in the last century for a number of different things. Schizophrenia was one. Uh, severe depression was another. Um, th- to my knowledge, is there's not been a study that's looked at that either in autism uh, or with uh, ADHD. Um, we, now we do have a lot of good, um, you know, a lot of good interventions on both of those. And again, if you can diagnose those conditions early, particularly autism, there are a lot of good interventions that don't uh, have a lot of the side effects that you would have 
with uh, electroconvulsive uh, shock therapy. Um, ADHD, everybody thinks about medications, but there's a lot of behavioral techniques that you can use, and a lot of people uh, pick those up on their own that can help them deal with that uh, with that disorder throughout their lifetime. Uh, there are a lot of both stimulant and non-stimulant um, uh, ways of treating ADD. So it's you know it's it, there are some yeah. other things that you is can it treat a it with. Treatment or is it effective? So so it is. Tra- so you're talking about cure then. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. To my not, and that's you know, uh, even with with using electroconvulsive therapy uh, with other disorders like severe depression uh, and uh, and schizophrenia uh, in in a lot of different forms, you're not really you're really treating symptoms. So I, I'm not aware of any case where you actually cure it. Uh, certainly, it's it's in the same category as say giving medication for schizophrenia given medication for uh, severe depression. Um, Since everything else doesn't work, might this be a a thing that might be tried? Yeah, I I guess, you know, Frank, I I would disagree with you a little bit that, you know, we do have things that that do work uh, in both of those conditions and certainly wouldn't have the, the side effects. The biggest the biggest concern about electroconvulsive therapy uh, is some of the side effects. And you do have a lot of changes within the brain, a lot of personality changes, some other, uh, you know, you really has to be monitored fairly closely. And uh, the, the centers that are using it right now is really a, it's not a go-to is the first thing that you go to. It's something that, that you want to try some of the more uh, established uh, therapies first before you jump on that. So, yeah, you know, in my opinion, and and I think this would be most most others, uh, you know, for those conditions, particularly in kids, uh, I I would say that's that's something that we have other things that are more successful in treating those disorders. Well, it is very radical, right? But I disagree with you that you have found a way to cope with the problem. Well, Frank, you know, there's a lot of other things out there that uh, we we don't have cures for. And, uh, you know, you can take things as, as simple as hypertension or diabetes and uh, sure, you never cure it, uh, but you, you do treat it and try to minimize some of the risks. So, you know, it's just a little bit different way of thinking about it. Okay. All right. Thank you, Frank, for calling. I appreciate that call. And um, let's go to George in Vicksburg. Good morning, George. Are you there, George? George, are you yes. there? Oh, good. Thank yes. you. Thanks for calling this morning. My wife and I are both in our 60s. We grew up in metropolitan areas. As kids, we never heard the term autism. We didn't know anyone who had autism. And why is it now that we hear about such a shocking percentage of young children who have autism? Uh, those are great questions, and part of that is that in the past uh, there were a lot of uh, you know a lot of cases that if you look back in the in the case record of those patients, uh, you know forty fifty years ago, they would be diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. And one of the reasons that we probably have more autism now, most people think, is because we have better ways to identify it. Uh, so we're, we're screening for it. We didn't have those screenings, you know, 40 years ago, uh, that we have now. So we're actually looking for it a lot more, uh, you know, in, in most pediatricians offices, 
those are screenings that every child is getting. So we try to pick up on those things early again because you can have a lot of good interventions to try to you know to try to alleviate some of the the, the effects long term. Um, and then other things were misdiagnosed as as you know certain other disorders. Uh, a lot of people were uh, were uh, earlier in the last century were were diagnosed with uh, with cerebral palsy, uh, with mental retardation, and you know I should point out you know autism spectrum disorder it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. Uh, certainly, in some cases, you can have some some you know overlays of of that, but. Uh, these are kids that have processing disorders with the way they interact with their environment. So that's one thing. A lot of there's a lot of things we don't know about autism, about why we're having so many kids that are, uh, you know, coming up with it now. Um, most people think there is both genetic and environmental reasons why that we have more of it. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are some, you know, lots of genetic st- uh, studies looking at the association if you have somebody in your family that has had autism, you're more likely to have it. So we know a little bit about it, but we've got a long way to go before we can nail it down and say, this is the thing that really is uh, is, is causing the increase of autism. And probably we'll never be able to point to one thing. It's much too complex of a problem. It's probably a lot of different things that are contributing to it. But that's what most people believe who, who research it is is there's a lot more that we're picking up is number one. And, and then two, there's, there may be some things in the last 30 or 40 years that we're doing differently that, that might uh, contribute to it. Okay. Well, thank you for your insight. Sure. Sure. Thanks, George. We appreciate those calls and, uh, got a couple of minutes for one or two more calls if you've got them. And, uh, certainly, uh, we want to be able to, uh, to try to answer any kind of calls that you have about anything. Uh, got a lot of things going around right now about, uh, concerns about, uh, superbugs in the news. And, uh, it seems like every time a couple of the news feeds that I look at, uh, antibiotic resistance to a lot of bacteria is certainly a concern. I know it's a concern in, in our hospital and our clinics that we, uh, try to, to, uh, judiciously use antibiotics. And, uh, you know, I had a patient yesterday that asked me about, you know, they were having sort of some some allergy symptoms and asked about a, uh, an antibiotic. And we had a good discussion about, you know, probably why that was inappropriate in, in that setting. And a, a lot of people have been used to, uh, you know, their kids or themselves getting treated with antibiotics, uh, probably inappropriately in most most cases. Um, you know, that's one of the things that as a as a parent of a child, as a patient yourself, you know, I would ask your physician, do I really need this antibiotic? And and that's a great question to ask about any medication uh, because there are some alternatives. A lot of conditions will resolve on their own. And certainly we can have a lot of side effects down the, ro- the road as we've had with antibiotic resistance. You know, a lot of the antibiotics that were developed um, back in the last century are pretty much useless at this point for a number of conditions just because of that resistance and Although I think a, a bit of the, the super bug uh, type stories in the news are certainly, uh, you know, sort of uh, trumped up a little bit about, you know, about how bad those are. But um, but we still need to, to be cautious about that. And uh, certainly every little infection that you have, uh, I would not rush to an antibiotic for that. And if you do uh, are diagnosed with something that is treatable with an antibiotic, uh, I would I would make sure your physician is, you know, is is choosing one that's. Uh, very specific for that. Uh, and sometimes that may require some testing. Sometimes that might require you waiting a little bit longer to see if those symptoms are going to persist. 
Uh, we've got great data now, particularly in kids. You take ear infections as one area that, you know, you don't have to treat those symptoms right off the bat. Certainly it's uncomfortable. It's something that the parents are having to deal with. But uh, you don't have any long-term complications if you wait a little bit. Uh, and in most cases, those will resolve on their own and, and are probably due to viral infections, which uh, are not, uh, you know, not sensitive to those uh, antibiotics. Antibiotics usually are prescribed for bacterial infections and not viral infections. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We want to thank all of our callers for calling in. This is your show. We want to make sure that you get a chance to ask any questions that you might have. So Southern Ribbony Kids and Teens is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Today's show was engineered by Jay White, and our call screener was Sam Wells. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. You can join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio.